Mighty God and Everlasting Father, we thank you for your graciousness in delivering your word to us that demonstrates your sovereign power over all of creation. We look to you, Lord, as we study Genesis 25:23, and then looking at Romans 9, at Paul's interpretation of these verses, we ask, O oh God, that you would demonstrate to us a basic understanding of what it means that you are an electing God. We ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate us this morning and that you would be exceedingly gracious and merciful to minister to us. We ask, Father, these things in the name of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray. Amen. Let's look at Genesis 25:23. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Let's also turn over to Romans chapter 9. And we're going to read from the beginning of the chapter down through verse 24, or 25 rather. Romans chapter 9, 1 through 25. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ, from my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? 
Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lumps to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles? As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people, who are not my people, and her beloved, who is not beloved. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us. Well, we recap what's happening in Genesis chapter 25. In Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 to 28, the genealogy of Isaac and the promised seed is taking place. And we found that Esau sold his birthright to Jacob. Now, this was not just simply a physical thing, it was a spiritual thing. Esau demonstrated his evil and wicked attitude towards the promises of God and the promises that the Lord made concerning the promised seed by selling his birthright. This is a spiritual thing, not a physical thing. We talked about last week how this particular chapter demonstrates the scriptures' repeated instances of talking about election. And now we turn to a commentary on the life of Jacob and Esau. The commentary is Romans 9, verses 1 through 13, and we'll look, as I said, up and through verse 25, and we'll overview this chapter in demonstrating Paul's commentary on the life of Jacob and Esau. Now, this section begins in Romans 9 with Paul's addressing the issue of Israel's rejection of Christ and Paul's grief for that rejection. In verses 1 through 5, Paul explains that just as he had been estranged from Christ and boasted in his ethnic privilege, so the Israelites do so now to their own destruction. It's important to note that the Greek construction here is usually translated incorrectly in our modern Bibles, missing a parenthetical thought that Paul has within these thoughts. Because there seems to be a problem theologically translating the verse to show that Paul would, if he could, be estranged from grace for the sake of his countrymen who are lost. But that's not what he's saying. Because it seems as though it is as if Paul says that he would be cursed and lost if they could be saved. And some incorrectly believe this to be the case, as if Paul was in a state of ecstasy, wishing that he could trade places with the lost Israelites. But I don't believe this to be the case, since the Greek does not allow for that interpretation. Rather, it's a parenthetical thought. As I was estranged, so they are estranged. Paul then, in verse 6, shows that just because most of Israel rejected the Messiah, it is not, however though the word of God has taken none effect. Just because they reject the Messiah doesn't mean God is not working. He uses this verse as a transition into understanding what the Old Testament patriarchs in the Exodus passage came up with on this particular point. Why is this so? Why is he saying that they, the word of God has not taken none effect? Well, he says, 
for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. The true Israel is made up of those chosen according to the purpose of God. Not those believe who they, that they can work to get into heaven, or those who believe that they have some special privilege being born within the lineage of Abraham. Paul builds upon his argument in this way. First, he begins with Abraham. And he anticipates what the Jews' reaction is going to be to this teaching. Verses 7 to 9 state, Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So Paul begins to teach the wonderful doctrine of election here and is attempting to prove that the Israelites are not necessarily genealogically the chosen race. Though they're molded by the potter's will, they're not necessarily molded as vessels of grace by simply being the sons of Abraham. They must have faith. They have to have the faith of Abraham, one which believes the promises of the gospel. Jewish heritage is not enough for salvation. The Jewish man, the Pharisee, would detest the thought that one could be a son of Abraham and be a Gentile. They would have believed that to be chosen of God, you have to be a Jew. However, Paul begins with using Abraham, a Gentile, as his first model. It's as if Paul is saying, Abraham was a Gentile, and God chose him. He was of Ur of the Chaldeans. The Jew would have objected. They would have said, well, but of course, God had to start somewhere. So, they, so we started with Abraham. Well, Paul anticipates this, and then moves to the next logical step in the genealogical line. Abraham's son, Isaac. And God chose Isaac over Ishmael. So, Paul is rationally proving to them that God is a choosing God regardless of the person. But the Jew, even on that point, would have said, well, of course he chose Isaac. Ishmael was a half-breed, born of that Egyptian woman. God would have never chosen a half-breed. God chooses Jews. It's here that the Jew would be building confidence in his argument against Paul. God chooses Jewish men. He doesn't choose half-breeds and he doesn't choose Gentiles. Abraham was a special case because he was God's first chosen man in the lineage of the Jews. But Isaac was a true Jew chosen over the half-breed Ishmael. So the Jew thinks that he has things right. But then Paul shows the Jew that he is utterly wrong. God does choose Jews. But he chooses true Jews. God's choice of men is that which makes them true Israelites. God's choice is what creates spiritual Jews. So Paul uses the argument in the choice of God between Jacob and Esau, two full-blooded Jews. The Jew would argue for election of the nation simply because they're Jewish. 
Paul is arguing the election of individuals purely because of God's sovereign choice. He decides who to save and when to save them. That is why the promise is made to the seed. The children of the promise, the children of the line of the woman, are counted as the seed, not the seed of the serpent. Those in the lineage of Christ's death are counted as the seed, not those who have Satan as their father. Christ is ultimately the seed. What will the Jewish man say? Well, Paul anticipates that at this point, the Jewish man will be quiet for some time. And he goes on to explain the election of men. Verses 10 through 12. Listen to what he says. And not only this, but when Rebekah had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calls, it was said to her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Here, the contrast is made between Jacob, the Jew, and Esau, the Jew. These two twins had done absolutely nothing to merit salvation or damnation. Their works, their actions, their thoughts, their intentions had absolutely nothing to do with their election or their non-election. They hadn't done anything, as the texts read, good or evil. It was simply a matter which was up to God's good pleasure in decreeing which one would be saved and which one would be lost. Then, Paul answers a question here without even asking the question. The anticipated question would have been, what did God will to do? Well, the answer that Paul gives and says, God desired to choose Jacob over Esau as a result of his good pleasure. That's what he says here. The twins' actions, whether good or evil, had no say in the matter whatsoever. The election of Jacob and the reprobation or the non-election of Esau was according to, as Paul says, him that calls. It was the decreed will of God that Jacob be saved and Esau lost. That is what God's intention was for them. The sole good pleasure of God makes the difference between the elect and the reprobate, and that is what qualifies how they are either saved or not. And there's not any quality, either good or bad, foreseen in them. It has nothing to do with what they did do or what they didn't do. And what Paul is doing is he's commenting on Genesis 25, and then he's bringing in Malachi 1-2. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. The sentence itself shows us exactly what the intention of God toward Jacob himself and Esau himself was. It was to them as men, not anything else. The Greek words here demonstrate that Jacob and Esau are the objects of the sentence. God is showing his eternal intentions to Jacob and Esau themselves. And though 
the Greek is very plain in that way, oftentimes there are a couple of attempts to discredit election by changing the way that this verse reads. There are two, really, that are big and important. One is to read into the verse the idea that God loves the sinner but hates the sin. To read something into one part of the verse, though, you have to read it into the other part of the verse. So if it's really Esau's sins that God hates and not Esau himself, this particular verse is a parallelism. So whatever you read in the last part of the verse, you have to read in the first part of the verse. Which means if you're going to go that way, you would have to say this. Jacob's sins I loved, but Esau's sins I hated. And that doesn't make any sense whatsoever because God hates sin. So that's an obvious blunder, and it's not accepted because, not even to mention, the word sins is not even in the text. The second attempt to discredit God's sovereign election of men individually is then to take the word hated and change it. And they want to change this into the idea of loved less rather than hated. So the verse would read, Jacob I loved, but Esau I loved less. Because, according to some, God doesn't hate anyone. Well, the word for hate is the Greek word hate. It means hatred. And it can have the idea of hateful, to hate, to pursue with hatred, or to detest, or to be hated or detested. In Biblical Greek, in Koine Greek, there is no word for loved less. Why would, then, somebody want to change the idea of hating Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, to Jacob I loved, and Esau I loved less? Why would they want to do that? Why do some people desire that interpretation? Well, they want to make Romans 9.13 the exception to the rule because they go over to the Gospel of Luke and they pull out the same Greek word in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Because it's also used there. And Jesus says there, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yes, even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And they say, Jesus cannot possibly want us to hate our parents and sisters and brothers, literally, he must mean that this is some sort of figurative idea. Many commentators want to read that principle into Romans 9.13. And they want to force the word hate to mean a lesser love instead. In other words, Jesus is simply saying that to be a disciple, we must love God most and love our parents less. That's their idea. But that is not what Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. And it's not what Paul is saying in Romans 9, chapter, verse 13. The word means that in comparison to loving the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to hate them in comparison. It's a radical love which Christ calls us to. And we must love Christ with such intensity that the relationship we have with our parents, with our siblings, would be seen as one of hatred to them in comparison to loving him. 
The word, miseo, to hate, is very correct. And it does not mean to love less. It does mean to hate with an utter hatred. Romans 9.13 and Luke 14.26 are not going to allow, if one is going to be honest about what the text says, that they mean loved less. Both of those passages mean to hate in their respective contexts. And the reason why some don't hold the proper interpretations of Romans 9.13 is because they don't like the idea that God is a sovereign, electing God. They don't like the idea that God elects and that he reprobates. And you cannot talk about election without speaking of reprobation, which is exactly why Paul's commentary on Genesis 25:23 is exactly the way that he set it up here. God's eternal intentions are seen in both election and reprobation. God loves Jacob, but he hates Esau. He doesn't hate Esau's sins. He hates Esau himself. This is God's disposition towards him as a result of the fall. In Adam, God hates Esau. In Adam, God also hates Jacob. But, in Christ, God loves Jacob. In this passage, we're dealing with election and the attitude of the potter. He loves Jacob in Christ, and that trumps any kind of hatred that he would have in Adam. Because Jesus does away with and remove expiates that theological word, the wrath of God, and propitiates that theological word that Paul uses. And he saves Jacob, but he doesn't do that for Esau. As the eternal God, he could do whatever he wants. As the potter, he could do whatever he so desires. If Jacob was not elected in Christ before the foundation of the world, God would not be able to love him. Jacob and Esau's actions are not part of the picture. When God determined their fixed, eternal destinations before the world was even created. That is why Paul says his eternal purpose. And then verse 14. Though this is hard teaching, Paul pulls no punches whatsoever in explaining this and anticipates the reaction, especially from the Jewish reader. Verse 14 states, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Wouldn't that be what the Jew would say? It's not fair that with two full-blooded Jews, God would choose Jacob and not choose Esau. They could sort of logically express in their mind, well, he started with Abraham, and Abraham was a Gentile anyway, but that doesn't matter because he had to start somewhere. And then he chose Isaac over Ishmael, and Ishmael was the half-breed, and God doesn't choose half-breeds, so we go with Isaac, and they seem to be following that line that God is going to choose Jewish people, but once they get to Jacob and Esau, it's over. Paul then anticipates that, is there unrighteousness then with the way that God works? He says... God forbid. The idea of God electing one Jewish man over and against another, or any man in particular, is foreign 
to the fallen mind. The fallen mind screams, it's not fair. The fallen mind says that that's not right. But what the fallen mind is forgetting is that the entire world is going to hell as a result of Adam's sin. And God doesn't have to save anyone if he doesn't want to. Fairness brought into the picture would have been to leave everyone because of their sin to go to hell. But Paul is redirecting our fallen minds in this commentary on Genesis 25 to realize that it is very fair. Men are fallen. Men are wicked. They deserve eternal damnation. God is not obliged to save all men and doesn't save all men, but he does save some men. And the Holy Spirit, in anticipation of the reaction of wicked men, places these words in the text by divine inspiration. God is not unrighteous in his dealings with men. The proof of that is seen in the next few verses. Romans 9, 15-18 says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Thus, so, Paul says, it's not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God that shows mercy. And then he uses an example. For the scripture says unto Pharaoh, Even for the same purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be declared through all the earth. Therefore, as he just said, he has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he wills, he hardens. This describes the immediate intention of the caller, the event itself, which depends on the most free and wise power of God. It indicates what his mind is, what his intention is, since nothing can happen that is not his will or intention. God hardens some men and he saves other men. And the means by which he might harden men may be both the general revelation of his power seen in nature or even the special means of grace such as the preaching of the word. In Pharaoh's case, God used special revelation the word of God through Aaron and Moses, and the miracles, which was also special revelation, specifically to harden Pharaoh's heart. Here we even find the reason Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Why? Paul specifically says that God's power might be seen. The distinction is made as a result of God's judgment, what he wants to do. And these verses, verses 15 to 18, they parallel some of the Old Testament scriptures which Paul is drawing from and believes that his reader is very familiar with. Exodus 33, 17 to 19, sets the basis for explaining what Genesis 25 means. It's Paul's thoughts concerning how God elects. It says, so the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, please, show me your glory. Then he said, 
I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So Paul, in demonstrating what God is doing with Jacob and Esau, demonstrates God's power by explaining Exodus 33, which these readers should understand and know about. Because this is Paul's exegetical commentary on God's description of himself. What is God doing when he elects people? What is he doing? He's demonstrating his glory. He's showing his goodness. He's showing his compassion. And it's important to see that Paul places this description of God in the midst of his teaching about salvation, election, and reprobation. The very character of the Almighty God is at the heart of this doctrine, as far as Paul is concerned. In Exodus 33, God shows Moses his goodness and proclaims his name before him. His goodness is linked to his compassion and graciousness. The goodness of God, according to God himself, is shown to those who receive grace and compassion. So Paul then takes this idea and places it in its proper context of election and reprobation. God is gracious to some, and some find compassion because he is gracious. But to others, he hardens and he damns them. Those he hardens never see his electing goodness because it's hidden from them. How plain was it to Pharaoh when Moses and Aaron time and time again demonstrated God's will, demonstrated the miracles, even Pharaoh wavered as we've been reading in our Old Testament. He's wavered. Okay, go ahead. Oh, no, no, I'm not going to let you go. Okay, go ahead. Oh, no, no, I'm not going to let you go. Because his heart would continually get seared and grow harder and harder. Only those who have grace and compassion taste and see that the Lord is good. And that is what God himself proclaims as he passes before Moses. But with Pharaoh, which Paul is also thinking about, because he's used him as an example to demonstrate how God elects and reprobates, he has certain passages in mind. He has Exodus 4.21. And the Lord said unto Moses, When you go to return into Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. Exodus 7.3 and 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 10.1 and 2. Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart in the hearts of his servants. Paul has previously stated that God hardens whom he will. And the word hardened in Romans 9.18 is the same word that's used in all of these Exodus passages in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was the disciples and Christ's Bible. The passages are undeniably stating that it's God's intention to harden Pharaoh, when at the same time, he could soften his heart, but he doesn't. God has other purposes. It's about God. Paul says to show his glory. It's not about men. 
God, hard, God hardened Pharaoh as God used Moses, the plagues, the word preached to him. And all of that manipulation caused him inwardly to be bitterly stubborn. God did not go into his heart and change his heart and make it evil. He just simply didn't change Pharaoh's heart, left him in his sin, and Pharaoh grew more obstinate as he aggravated his own sin in himself as a result of what God was doing around him. And then in Romans 9, uh, 19 to 24, we have Paul's conclusion to this first section of a lengthy discourse on election and reprobation. Think about how the book of Romans is set up. Here, these are the concluding thoughts of how salvation works. He's demonstrated in Romans chapter 1 that everyone is under sin. Chapter 2 and chapter 3 demonstrate Jew and Gentile alike. Chapter 4 and 5 dealing with how justification works, how God saves. 6 and 7 and 8 demonstrate how the life of the believer and the unbeliever are respective of their lives before God, one in sin, one in struggling against sin. All of it, though, wrapped up here in understanding that it is God's glory and His glory alone that is the purpose behind all that He does. And then, at the end of this section, he asks the question, because he knows it's on their mind, you'll say to me, why does he still find fault with us if God does all this stuff? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump? from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. Again, Paul anticipates the reaction of those first learning this doctrine. He accordingly states that they would ask him such questions as, why does he still find fault? Who has resisted his will? This is a very important question. The Holy Spirit carried Paul along to place it here in the Scriptures for us. If God is reprobating men from all eternity according to his good pleasure, and he's electing men from all eternity according to his good pleasure, how does he still find fault with the people? How could God truly find the reprobate guilty if it's up to God to elect or not elect? Well, God is not guilty of the sin of men, for men commit the sin because... They're fallen, though it be decreed by God that they disobey him. They're guilty in Adam first, long before they commit any sin. And in that alone, God is not obliged to save them. In his eternal counsel, he has decided that some men shall be eternally damned. 
He's going to leave them right where they are. He's not going to change their heart. And just like Pharaoh, all that go around them, all the circumstances of their life are simply going to aggravate their fallen condition all the more and they will further condemn themselves. The answer that Paul gives is that God is not liable to answer to men. He is God. And whatsoever he pleases, he does. But he's always just and he's always righteous in his actions. Paul then uses the potter and the clay analogy to show that clay pots have no say in their formation. They are helplessly spinning on the potter's wheel. As the master potter shapes and forms them, all from the same lump to do his bidding and all by his good pleasure. God desires to make vessels of wrath to display his wrath. The word that Paul uses there is the word prepared. It means to prepare beforehand or to make ready beforehand. God prepares these vessels beforehand for this purpose. This is his process of hardening. And the vessels of wrath need to be fitted for hell in a special way. In order for them to exemplify the power of God's holiness and his justice. Likewise, the vessels of mercy are fitted by mercy and for mercy so that the holiness and love of God will be exemplified in heaven in their respective ways. Both kinds of vessels, vessels of gold, vessels of wood, noble and unnoble, are fitted for their day by God's determinate counsel, his own good pleasure. Or does not the potter have power over the clay to do what he wills with his own? And that's Paul's commentary on the manner of what's happening with Jacob and Esau. We finish the brief look at Romans with a quote which Paul uses to complete his thoughts on election and reprobation. The quote is actually in Romans chapter 11, verse 22. And it states, Therefore, after saying all of these things, you always wonder why therefore is therefore. The, the reason is, is because he has a concluding thought. All of these other things that he said, we are to ponder. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity. But toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Paul makes absolutely no bones about the gravity of what he's talking about here and the doctrine that he's teaching. He commands us. It is a command to consider all of this. Therefore, consider. Goodness and severity are parallel here. There's a balance. Some receive goodness. Some receive severity. They're not intermingled. With some... God shows his goodness and salvation, like Jacob. In others, he shows his severity, like with Esau. A demonstration of the intention of the caller, of God himself, is Esau's actions to despise the spiritual promises. It shows the disparity of that event and the intention of God as the caller. Both come from the same lump of clay. 
but it's the freedom and good pleasure of the potter to do what he wills with the clay as his intentions towards those vessels are immutable and they're everlasting. Paul's told us it's his eternal purpose. One will receive either goodness or severity. This is Paul's commentary on the life of Jacob and Esau. This is the springboard, Genesis 25-23, that demonstrates his thoughts concerning election, concerning what is going on in that passage, and demonstrating by analogy, and these other verses, and these other places in the Old Testament, with Pharaoh and Moses, what God is doing. All of it, all of it revolves around the glory of God. All of it revolves around God's purpose in demonstrating his power to the world. God could have placed for you and I a cosmic billboard in the sky that says, look, here I am. Everybody come to me. I have free salvation. I'm the only God. But the very fact that there are other religions in the world demonstrates that God does not work that way. What he does is he goes to individuals who he has purposed before the foundation of the world, who are in the line of the woman, not the line of the serpent, as he, as he so determined, and he changes their hearts not to despise the spiritual promises of grace. As we consider... Genesis 25:23. We must therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. It is and should be for us now, as we have just simply briefly looked at Romans 9 and thinking about what God is doing with Jacob and Esau and how this changes our view and in should change the Jewish view of what is happening in these passages, of how unbelievably gracious and good God is for us to be sitting here today to be able to say, God has saved us. God was not under any obligation to save us. God was not under any restraint one way or the other. Rather, out of his goodness, out of his sheer good pleasure, he looked upon each of us and he said, I am going to elect that person from the foundations of the world in my son, in Christ. And I'm going to love him for all eternity in Christ. And because of Christ's work, I'm going to shower upon them all the blessings. Blessings more than they could possibly hold. The windows of heaven are going to open wide in Christ saving us, changing us, giving us a new heart, placing a spirit within us, saying himself that he and the Father will make his dwelling with us, should utterly amaze us. We might say, why me and not them? Why me and not my dad or my mom or my brothers or my sisters or my next door neighbors? But we answer with Paul. Look at God's eternal purpose in so loving to save some 
that we should still have all the hope that we could possibly muster that as they are still alive, we might demonstrate that election to them. Maybe they will be saved. Maybe the Lord will reach down and demonstrate a change in their heart. We have seen it with people. We have seen people changed who were once heathens and brought back by God so that God might demonstrate his glory in them. We are, for all intents and purposes, vessels that are like mirrors that are supposed to glorify the living God as mirrors that reflect God's power in all the earth. That is Paul's reasoning for why Esau despised his birthright and Jacob loved the promises of God. Let us, brothers and sisters, therefore consider, in our case, the goodness of God and, for others, the severity of God. Because God demonstrates his power, even in the fallenness of man, even in the reprobation of men, for our benefit, the glory of his name. He did it with Pharaoh. He did it with Esau. He did it before the very eyes of the people of God. For us as well, he does it. And he does it to assure us that even though there are those he has passed by, even though there are the Pharaohs and Esau's of the world, for us it demonstrates our desire to cling to him all the more because of what he's done in our heart, in our life, through the Lord Jesus Christ, as a result of his work, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his present intercession for us for all eternity. With these thoughts, let's close and pray. Mighty God and everlasting Father, we thank you that before the foundations of the world, you have demonstrated your decree to save some through the Lord Jesus Christ. You've saved us. We are astounded at your glory, at your power, at your salvation. We are astounded that you would save wicked men and women. We are astounded and amazed and are left speechless. God is for us. Who possibly could be against us? We thank you, O God, that in Christ you have revealed to us the gospel, the good news of your glorious salvation, that you would demonstrate your power through all the earth. We thank you, O God, that you have done it in our life, and we pray that your Spirit would consecrate us to love you with a whole heart. And we so praise and give thanks to you. In Jesus' name, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. 
We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.